Morning. Little housekeeping uh, this morning, and that is that uh, we've, as some of you know, especially if you're uh, joining us online, we have had technical difficulties, especially with uh, Facebook, for months now. So we are making the decision to move off of Facebook and entirely to YouTube the Sunday after Easter on the 24th. You will find us at YouTube, but not on Facebook. We'll continue to advertise on Facebook. You can either go to YouTube and search for ECC Lafayette, or you can go to our, our webpage, ecclife.net slash worship. You can click on the link there and go to YouTube, or actually the service is displayed right there on that page as well. So that's going to happen in two weeks on the 24th of April. <clears throat> so our New Testaments begin with four accounts of Jesus' life. Most of us know that. Some might not know that. Those are called Gospels. And that word gospel is taken from um, an old imagery, another time and day when a herald would run from village to village to proclaim good news, which is what the word gospel means, good news. So a herald would run into a town or village and might proclaim that a new king was on the throne. That herald might say, I have good news, Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus is the new emperor. And he was, in fact, the emperor in the time of Jesus. But our four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, proclaim a different kind of king and a different king than the emperor was. As we saw last week, Jesus is the king of the universe who does not abuse his power but lays it down for our sakes. And so we have this back and forth in John John chapters 18 and 19, over who exactly Jesus is, what kind of king is he, and where is his kingdom. Over the past two Sundays and today, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, under Caesar Tiberius, has been questioning Jesus around this theme of kings and kingdoms. Though he is trying to find a way to release Jesus, he eventually gives in to the pressure of the Jewish leaders and hands Jesus over to be crucified in John 19, 16, where we read, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Each of the four Gospels in our New Testaments has a particular way of telling the story of Jesus. They have their own audiences, they have their own style, they have their own purposes. Ultimately, of course, all of them seek to teach us about what is most important about Jesus, and that is his life, his death, his resurrection, and the way he teaches us to live. But they do tell the story in nuanced and in different ways from one another, and that is even more true of the Gospel of John. He has a different emphasis that he wants us to hear, and so... We talk of those first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we call them the synoptic Gospels, which just means, synoptic just means that they are similar, that they tell pretty much the same events, and sometimes they even do it verbatim with one another. John, however, for the most part, has a lot of distinct material that the synoptic Gospels do not have, and he has his reasons. So the first difference in today's account is that while in those synoptic Gospels the authorities force a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross for him, John leaves that detail out completely. He he doesn't just leave it out. He says rather emphatically in verse 17, carrying his own cross, 
he went out to the place of the skull, carrying his own cross. John, John presents us with a Jesus who is completely in control. He is not a helpless victim. As Jesus himself says over in John 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, the authority to take it up again. Over in Luke's gospel, we're told something similar, but in a different way. In Luke 9, 51, we read, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Some translations, a little more literal, I think, say, set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is in control. Jesus is giving himself up. He's not being taken against his will, and he doesn't need someone else to carry his cross. Thank you very much. Now, that doesn't mean Simon didn't carry the cross. It means that John has decided for his telling of the story some 60 years later, he has decided that's not important for what he wants to say. He wants people to see that Jesus was in control. No, John says, Jesus was not a helpless victim. He was in complete control. He knew exactly what he needed to do, and he did it. And then he, John gives us much more detail about that sign that Pilate has placed above Jesus' head on the cross. The other Gospels all mention this sign. There are some slight variations in how they remember what it actually said. But John is the one who tells us that Pilate's charge against Jesus was in three languages, Aramaic, uh, Latin, and Greek, and that some of the Jewish leaders uh, were opposed to how he had written that sign. So what is, what is John up to here that he includes all this detail? Well, for starters, John, I think, uses Pilate to proclaim Jesus as king, even though Pilate doesn't believe he is. In telling the story this way and giving us this detail, John uses Pilate to proclaim Jesus as king, even though he doesn't believe he is. When Pilate proclaims Jesus as king of the Jews, that is an in-your-face move against the Jewish religious leaders. He does it to show people what will happen to anybody who makes this kind of claim. They will be crucified. They will be crucified. And not only does Pilate proclaim Jesus as king, but he, he does it to the whole known world. He uses three languages. Aramaic was the common dialect spoken by the everyday person in Jerusalem. Greek was the language of culture and commerce, and Latin was the language of government and power. And yet, the image of Jesus hanging on the cross is the opposite of power. Instead, what is displayed there is sacrificial love, servanthood. It's as if Pilate has proclaimed to the whole world that Jesus was king, but that he was a very different king. A king no one in that day or in ours would see as powerful enough to earn our respect, let alone to govern us. And this idea of a suffering king is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 1.23 when he says that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to everyone else. John Dixon, a speaker, writer, and thinker who lives in Australia, once spoke on a university campus in Sydney about the idea of the suffering, wounded God that we meet in Jesus upon the cross. And during the the question and response time afterwards, a Muslim man came to the mic, and he was kind and civil and intelligent, Dixon recalls. He, He told Dixon and all the students gathered there that it was, quote, preposterous 
to claim that the creator of the universe should be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he would have to eat, sleep, and go to the toilet, let alone die on a cross. He went on to argue that it made no sense that God could be tortured, wounded, and killed by lesser beings, his very own creation. Dixon was unsure of exactly what to say in that moment. He didn't have a witty comeback remark to make, so he paused for a few seconds and he simply thanked this Muslim man. He just thanked him for making a very succinct and clear claim that is the Christian claim of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Then Dixon concludes, what the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds precious. God has wounds. And I would add, God bore those wounds for us. The Sunday, as you've heard several times, is known as Palm Sunday. It can also be called Passion Sunday. Passion, in the old meaning of the word, meant to suffer. To observe Passion Sunday is to focus on Jesus' suffering on this day, as we are doing in John 19. To focus on Palm Sunday is to give the most attention to what we saw earlier, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we call Jesus' triumphal entry We heard the Palm Sunday reading earlier from John 12, so we're just going to take a little time in the midst of this to consider it and how it relates to what we're talking about now. In John's version, once again, Jesus is very much entering the city as a victor. We call it Palm Sunday, but it's only in John's Gospel that it is clearly identified that the people were waving palms. It's not that clear. It's not that specific in the other Gospels. Palm branches were a symbol of victory, This is intentional. You wave a symbol of victory. Everybody knew that's what it meant. It's like when Rhonda Ohms picks up the pink flamingo that she won during the March Madness contest and says, I've won it four times. (laughs) I think she cheats, but... (laughs) Sorry, Rhonda. Palm branches are a sign of victory. Everybody would have known that. John's point is Jesus is being welcomed into the city as a victorious king, as a victorious king would be welcomed, at least by some. John is also the only one who gives us this detail. Chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Went out to meet him. The people go out to meet Jesus before he enters into Jerusalem. And this, too, is the imagery of welcoming a dignitary. The other Gospels portray Jesus as entering Jerusalem and being kind of met with people. But in this one, they go out to meet him. They heard he was coming. They went out to greet him for the king that he was. John continues, verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Chapter 19, the sign above Jesus' head on the cross proclaims him as king in three languages, the whole known world. Here on Palm Sunday, it is the Pharisees who proclaim that the whole world has gone after Jesus. Chief among the fears for the Pharisees is that this growing of, this, of the following of this man that many believe may be the Messiah will draw attention of the Roman authorities who will squash it, who will come down on them hard, and no one wants that. There's still another detail that John gives us in his Palm Sunday account. Right after the Pharisees make their statement about the whole world going after Jesus, we read this. We didn't hear this earlier. 
Verses 20 to 22. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. It's further proof that the Pharisees are right. Not only have the Jews been following after Jesus, but now the Gentiles, the, the, the Greeks are too. It's, it's like the whole world is becoming more and more enthralled with this person, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of all people. And now that the Greeks are looking for him, now that the nations beyond the nation of Israel are interested in Jesus, now Jesus knows, as he says in the very next verse, that the hour of his death has arrived. Now that the Gentiles are seeking him out, he knows at least this part of his mission is done. The hour of his death has arrived. Now I want you to imagine that. Jesus enters into Jerusalem as a victor, as a Messiah. And then he announces that the hour of his suffering and death have come near. That wouldn't have made sense to anyone in that day and age. Kings don't reign through death. We don't defeat our enemies by dying. Back in John 19, there are a couple other details we dare not miss. Jesus carries the crossbeam on his back. He walks up the hill to the place of the sacrifice. And as he does so, the imagery that John and I think the Holy Spirit want us to see is of another place in Scripture where someone carries wood on their back up a hill to the place of their own sacrifice. Genesis 22. God speaks to Abraham and tells him to sacrifice his son on a mountain. I'm going to read parts of that passage, and as I do, I invite you to take note of the words you hear, in particular the ones I have highlighted, but there are others. These are likely key words that John wants us to hear when we read about Jesus in John 12 and in John 19. John wants us to think or be reminded of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Note the words Genesis uses that might catch our attention if we were reading John. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Then after they've traveled to the mountain, Abraham asks his servants to stay with the donkey. And his son Isaac and he will go up the mountain to make the sacrifice. And then we read in Genesis 22, verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and placed it on his son, Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. There are other phrases in Genesis 22 that I think are connected to what John tells us in John 12 and John 19. But I simply want us to see for the moment that Isaac, like Jesus, was forced to carry the wood, the tool of his own sacrifice, up to the place of sacrifice. And this mountain was the same mountain upon which old Jerusalem was built. And there, in Genesis 22, God interrupted Abraham just before he lowered the knife to sacrifice his son, and he provided a ram caught in the thicket for the sacrifice instead. But here, in John 19, God lets things play out. And later in this chapter, Jesus will die. What kind of king is this? What kind of king is this? What kind of king would allow himself to be treated this way, to be betrayed, to be wounded, to be tortured, to be put to death? 
of the kind of king Jesus was and is. In fact, it turns out that the, the moment of Jesus' crucifixion is the moment of his divine kingship. This is the kind of king Jesus is. He brings life out of death instead of putting others to death so that he can reign. He allows himself to be wounded and put to death by the very ones he created. And in this, his true kingship is revealed to all the world. This is why people like Brian Zahn refer to this event, the crucifixion of Jesus, as the epicenter of our faith. The epicenter. Now, of course, it's important to add that whenever we refer to the cross as vital to life or as vital to our faith or as the epicenter of our faith, that word cross is really shorthand for everything that takes place this week. It's shorthand for his betrayal, it's shorthand for his trial, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. The cross means all of those things. And all of that is vital and redemptive. All of it forms the epicenter of our faith. When I was in seminary, my church history class, one of the classes I remember was around the history of our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, and um, my professor, Phil Anderson, talked about the differences between two types of forces he saw at work in the history of the larger Evangelical Covenant Church. And as we, as we look at our denominational history, he said there were two forces at work that, that needed one another, and he called them centripetal and centrifugal. However, after conversations with a physics teacher and an astrophysicist, I've decided those categories are beyond my ability to talk about as if I know what I'm saying. So I'm going to adapt it a bit. In the beginning, the Evangelical Covenant Church was made up of Swedish immigrants. Some of you in this room are descended from some of them. Where's Janet? Janet's descended from some of them. Yeah. Made up of Swedish immigrants in an adopted country, there was a need to protect some things of their culture and their way of living and their way of practicing the faith. They sought to preserve some of what made them distinctive. They, they came at life and at faith from a more conservative point of view. And, and when, I hear, when I say conservative, do not hear me say anything political or theological. That's not what I mean. To be conservative is simply to seek to conserve what they valued most about their history, their identity, and the way they, they practiced their faith. But there's another force at work. Immigrant children are more eager to begin to accommodate to the culture, to get acculturated, to be more expansive. They want to push a little beyond the boundaries of their culture. They want to expand things a little bit. And so, covenant churches began to hold services in English and not just Swedish. And you can hear the old Swedes going, well, it's all downhill from now. To quote uh, Pastor Kurt, well, that'll probably lead to dancing. <laughs> this was a more progressive force. Again, not in a political or theological way. It is progressive in the sense that it simply means that these were forces that sought to move outward, lest they become too inwardly focused or even obsessed. Of course, in faith, in society... We need both. There are things we need to conserve and there are boundaries we need to expand. There are things we need to conserve and there are boundaries we need to expand. 
The Milky Way galaxy is spinning at the rate of 168 miles per second. Were it not for the gravity and the supermassive black hole that's at the center of our galaxy and possibly something we call, some mysterious thing we call dark matter, all the stars and the planets would go flinging out into space. It's horrifying (laughs) to imagine what that would be like. Likewise, without the spinning of the galaxy, gravity could very well take over and condense the whole galaxy into itself. Also horrifying. Neither option, neither option left to itself is good. Both are catastrophic. But together, both conservative and progressive forces work. This is true in faith. This is true in mission today as well. It was true in Israel's day, in Jesus' day. The nation of Israel sought to conserve itself because it found itself under the thumb of an occupying violent foreign army and pagans. They were being forced, as it were, to spin outward, we could say. So they sought to protect, they sought to conserve what they valued, what they had. Who can blame them? But Jesus comes along and he begins to expand the boundaries. He begins to spin the kingdom of God outward. He has a different view of the categories of the Jewish law of clean and unclean. He has a different view of women and children and the poor. He has a different view of non-Jews, Gentiles. Whereas more conservative forces wanted to keep things together and to protect it all, Jesus spends it outward. And he does it by his death on the cross and his resurrection. And as Jesus enters Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday and crowds are waving palm branches, the the Pharisees, who were more conservative on these things, saw the danger in Jesus. Look how the whole world has gone after him, they cried. A few Greeks who worshipped the God of Israel then came to Philip and said, we want to see Jesus. And when Jesus heard this, he knew his time had come. Something about the expansion of his mission beyond the people of Israel, the the spinning outward of things has been triggered in the fact that these Gentiles have come seeking Jesus. The kingdom spins outward. Later on in John 12, Jesus speaks of his coming crucifixion. And he says to those who are gathered around, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The kingdom spins outward. And then once Jesus is lifted up on the cross, Pilate has a placard placed above his head that announces in three languages that he is the king. And everyone who passed by, who could read, would know that Jesus was being proclaimed as king. And though it did not look like it, his kingdom was expanding. His kingdom was spinning outward. Jesus has come not only to save us, friends, but also to spin outward into the world through us that our neighbors might come to faith, that justice might roll down like a mighty river, that the kingdom of God might come and the will of God might be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, like Jesus, are called to spin outward with the ever-expanding kingdom of God even as the gravity of Good Friday holds us fast. And so next Sunday, we celebrate Christ's resurrection. Two services, 9 a.m. and 10.30. 
here in the sanctuary. We'll also live stream the 1030 service online. Who might you invite to worship with us online or in person? Let's pick up one of those cards that we mentioned a couple, couple times this morning. Find someone, prayerfully find someone, just invite them to join us here or online. The good thing about online, it's very safe. <laughs> it's very safe for someone who just wants to check, check it out. And while you're at it, pray for those who do not yet know Christ to be prompted by the Holy Spirit to seek out a place of worship on Easter Sunday, whether it's our church or somebody else's. Speaking of praying, there's another group of people I invite you to pray for. You heard a bit of it in the prayer earlier. And earlier we heard the story of the Muslim man who struggled with accepting a God who suffered at the hands of his own creation, thus revealing the uniqueness of Jesus to all who were gathered. Well, this week, as we consider our king who willingly suffered and died for the world, let us pray for our Muslim neighbors. This month in the Islamic world is Ramadan, a month of fasting. I can, I can say to you that I think there's something, there's something that happens, and I don't care who you are, whether you have no faith or another faith or the Christian faith, I think there's something that happens to us when we intentionally fast. It makes us sensitive to different things. And my, my prayer, and maybe you will pray along with me, is that those Muslims who fast each day during Ramadan would be open to some kind of supernatural revelation of who Jesus is, that Jesus would reveal himself to them. Can we join together and do that? Can we pray for those Christians who work with Muslims that they would have wisdom and grace, especially during this month? I've also put a link in your Bible app live event for more information on praying for Muslims for the rest of this month. Uh, it's in there, but if you don't have the Bible app, that's the, that's the website, 30daysprayer.com. And let us also surrender to the gravity of Good Friday this week. As we pray for others, as we seek for opportunities to spin outward, let us also surrender to the gravity of Good Friday. This is Holy Week, the holiest week in the Christian year. In whatever way you can, take time to remember it and to be aware of it. Join us online in person or in person as we remember the foundation of our faith that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friday night at 7. Praying for people, inviting people, spinning outward that more people might be drawn to Jesus, that, that more might be included in the goodness of God's kingdom. These are the work of what we refer to as our ECC touchstone of presence, where our faithfulness and our own transformation and our, our, our willingness to be the presence of God to our neighbors can bear fruit for the kingdom in our world. In John chapter 4, after the Samaritan woman at the well, has, has conversed with Jesus. She goes back to a nearby village of, of Samaritans where she begins to share with them what she has experienced in her encounter with Jesus. And many of them, were told, believe in Jesus because of her testimony. Then they come and they invite Jesus to come and stay with them for a couple of days. And Jesus comes and stays. And because of his words, because of his presence, many more of these Samaritans come to faith. John 4, 42. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Think about this for a minute. By the end of the story, it is the Samaritans 
the Samaritans, considered heretics and half-breeds, people that are excluded by many Jewish people. It is the Samaritans. They are the ones who see and experience this inclusive, this outward spinning of the grace of Jesus because to them, Jesus is not only the king of the Jews. He's the savior of the whole world. They get it. They get it way before anybody else in the Gospel of John gets it. My prayer is that we'll get it too. Would you pray with me as we close? God, I thank you for these two forces, both conservative and progressive, that we need to help us stay rooted and to help us reach out. I pray that we at ECC would find that tension, that balance between those two forces. That we would remain faithful to the foundation of our faith and faithful to the mission of our God. God, would you fill us with your spirit this week that as we walk through Holy Week, as we read from Scripture, as we worship on Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that that we would perhaps see and taste anew the beauty and the power of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors. And God, may we become a people deeply rooted in your word, deeply rooted in the community of your people, but ever pushing the boundaries that we could reach more people. For your sake and for your kingdom, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.